Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Oh, good good evening. Good to see you and uh, good to be here. And thank you for the invitation to be here. And uh, thank you to the church, Grace Bible Church, for uh, putting this together in partnership with the Free Grace Alliance. Find out about the FGA before you go. Uh, we're doing a great thing in getting the message of grace around the world and um, doing our best to do that. Tonight, we're going to uh, be running through Hebrews, I think. And uh, I have never, ever taught Hebrews 1 in 30 minutes. I've managed to cram it into three hours, but we have a challenge before us tonight, so not much introductory information. In fact, that's why I printed two handouts for you. One just has some basic introductory information that I think represents the other speakers close enough. They can correct me and improve on that if they need to. And then one about the readers of the book of Hebrews, which I think we will see are believers, and this is a book written to believers and um, who are in danger of falling away from the faith, returning to their Jewish faith under persecution. Um, uh, so it was written before the temple was destroyed because the temple is often referred to in temple worship in the book, and you can read all of that for yourself. You see how I nailed the authorship question? That's true, right? And as Father, Church Father Origen said, only God knows. So Hebrews chapter 1. Recently, I was fishing, and by the way, that's a statement you can take to the bank. Almost always true. I was fishing uh, with a fellow. We had been paired up on a guide boat, and so a couple guys, uh, me and my friend, paired up with a couple other guys we did not know, but I got to know him, of course, on this trip. And uh, one of the fellows was a younger fellow, uh, to, not to me, that's about early 40s, and uh, we got to to talking and knowing a little bit more about him. Ends up he's a very successful businessman, owned several businesses, had a lot of money. He bought a 15-unit apartment building while we were out there on the ocean. Uh, had talked about his investments, so he was very well off. He had made quite a success of his life at that early of an age. And, um, and then when we talked a little bit about what I did and some of the mission trips we do and overseas work, uh, which is for me usually teaching, but sometimes I take teams that will you know build a building or do evangelism or church planning. And he said, you know, I'd really like to go on a mission trip sometime. My wife and I have been talking about, we really, really want to do that with our lives and uh, maybe help build something because he's in the building trade. And I said, sure, we've been keeping in touch about that. But what that showed me was something that's probably typical of all of our lives. When we reach a certain point, uh, as he had in his life, I'm sure, he's proven to himself that he can be a success. He's proven to himself that he can do it. But what is missing in his and maybe our lives is that idea of significance. I'm successful, but am I significant? A fellow named Bob Buford, spelled with one F if you look it up, wrote a book called Halftime. And in that book, his whole point is that we spend the first half of our lives looking for success. But when we find it or obtain it, we spend the second half of our life looking for significance. I mention that because Hebrews is a book about significance, eternal significance. 
That's written to believers. And all believers have significance in God's eyes because we're all God's children. But salvation is not just about eternal existence. It is about, it, it offers an opportunity for, to expand our eternal significance. And that's what Hebrews is talking about, as we'll see when we go through it. And it does that. I mean, the reason, of course, that we're significant is not because of who we are, but it's because of who he is, who Jesus is. And it all has to do with our relationship and our faithfulness to him. And so as we're faithful and as we serve him, we find that what we do in this life, in that sense, adds to our eternal significance and makes a difference in the future. And so Hebrews, will find, is a forward-looking book about the future. So the theme of the superiority of a person who makes us significant in the first place, Jesus Christ, is at the very center of the book. It's, it's a book crammed with this, uh, the idea that Jesus Christ is the superior one. And in chapter 1, it talks about the superiority of Christ, and that discussion actually goes into chapter 4. I'll only be talking about chapter 1. And in the first three verses, we have uh, three verses just crammed with uh, phrases, clauses about Jesus and who he is. It is so densely packed, this author was so skilled at getting so much said into three verses. It's amazing. So in those three verses, he talks about how Christ is over all of older re old revelation before, and then in the rest of the chapter, his superiority over the angels. So let's take a little closer look at that. Let's talk about how Christ is over old revelation. And uh, reading verses one through three, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's dive into this. God, in various times, as we know, spoke through the prophets, sometimes in oral messages, sometimes poetically, sometimes with illustrations and, and, um, and uh, visions. And there was always a revelation forward-looking about something, and generally in some aspect about Jesus Christ. They gave us pieces of information about Jesus Christ. And in the pro progress of revelation through the Old Testament, we find out more and more and more about him. Well, that was the past, is what the author is telling us. But in these last days, now he's not talking about the very last days, like, but he's talking about the messianic days that Jesus inaugurated when he came, the, the, the days of Jesus Christ, the days of the new covenant that we're in today. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So now we have a revelation from God in this progress of revelation, which becomes the ultimate message from God, the, the end message, we might say, the final piece of the puzzle that the prophets left us. And he's trying to show the superiority of the, of the, the spoken message of Jesus Christ over the old revelation. Everything looked forward to him. Now, I'm not at all making a political statement, but you know it's a political season, and I did watch almost, I was away fishing for the Democratic National Convention. Um, but uh, I have seen most of the Republican National Convention. And what you saw, if you dared watch, was one speaker after another, after another, after another, touting 
President Trump saying something about his policy on the right to life or the Second Amendment or uh, business or social injustice or racial equality. Everybody had something to say. And then last night, Donald Trump takes the stage, and for 110 minutes, he declared with himself what he believed and what he was going to do. He was the final message, which trumped all the other messages. See what I'm saying? Jesus Christ, in the same way, was the fulfillment of all that was said before him. It all looked forward to him. And when he takes the stage and he proclaims his message, as we see it in the Gospels interpreted in the epistles, we have the final spoken word of God. What fortunate times we live in to be able to look at the whole puzzle together. So Jesus is the ultimate message and the final piece. And he goes on to say, whom he is appointed heir, heir of all things. Jesus Christ is God's appointed heir in the kingdom of God, which he will establish on this earth. Jesus Christ will inherit the kingdom that was promised to him, the Davidic throne that was promised to him, and all the nations will be put under his feet, under his power, and, um, and we will be with him. We'll talk more about that. And then it says, through whom also he made the worlds. He is the creator. That is uh, very similar to what um, Colossians 1.16 says about Jesus. He has created all things. The one who creates all things means he has the authority, is sovereignty over all things. He's the owner of all things. He has a sovereign right over all things as the creator. And so these phrases are telling us uh, one thing after another about Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the major assertion being that God has spoken in these last days uh, through his son. But here we go. He is the heir and he is the creator and, and he is the revealer of God. And in chapter 3, verse A, it says, it says, who being the brightness of his glory, who bring the brightness of his glory. He's the revealer of God in, in that he manifests God's glory. The word brightness comes from the word sun, and it has the idea, of course, of, of uh, glory, great glory. And it reminds us of John 1.14, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And so when we see the glory of God manifested in Jesus' attributes and in, in his character, his nature, his power, we're seeing as much of God as we are able to see this side of eternity. He is the expression of God, it goes on to say, and the express image, he is express image of his person. So when we see Jesus Christ, we see the very image of God. The word image here is, in the Greek, sounds very similar to uh, the English word character. Uh, he represents God. Uh, it, it was used of uh, an impression that was made by a die. For example, if you're going to make a coin, you make an impression, a die, and then you pour the molten metal in there, and it comes out with the image of the die. And so Jesus is the exact express image of God, so that we can't look at God directly, but we see him in Jesus Christ. We can't look at George Washington directly, but we can see him on a dollar bill. And so we have an idea of what he's like. And the closest we'll have to seeing 
the very nature of God and image of God is through Jesus Christ himself. The express image of his person. That's an interesting word, too. It's translated in different ways in different versions. Uh, it's translated in some versions where he's the express image of his nature, uh, of his being. And the word has to do with the very essence of something. So Jesus is expressing the very essence of who God is. He completely, he participates completely in the Father's deity. And who better could reveal the Father than his Son? You've heard the expression, uh, he's his father's son. When there's a, a boy who acts or speaks or uh, has the same interests as his father, someone might say, oh, he's his father's son, for good or for bad. If Donald Trump didn't speak last night in his final speech, I probably would point to Donald Trump Jr. as the best expression of his father, don't you think? He has the same name. He looks kind of like him, except with a hair. And <laughs> Nobody has that hair, but, uh, but he, he's like his father's son. So we would look at Donald Trump Jr. and say, well, that's as close as we're going to get to know him unless we see him himself. And the Bible tells us, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time except for the son who's in the bosom of the father. And he has declared him, or the word manifested him. He is ex kind of means explained to us the father. So we see Jesus, we see the father. He is the very expression of God. And he goes on to say that he is the sustainer who um, upholding all things by the word of his power upholding all things by the word of his power. The word upholding there uh, means to not just hold th things together like Colossians 1.17 says, he holds all things together. It has the idea of bearing up a burden, carrying something to its mission. Jesus is carrying us along and all of creation along to the goal, the final goal of the kingdom of God. He's bearing us up and carrying us along to our final destiny. And so, uh, he's carrying creation to the goal for which it was intended to be subject to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he does that by the power of his word, by the power of his word. The power of his word that calmed the seas, the power of his word that healed the sick and raised the dead, the word of God. Jesus was the living word of God, and we have the written word of God. The word of God has its own power. And that power promises, has made promises that must be kept. Jesus, by his very message, is upholding the world, bearing it towards that goal. And then the last thing in verse 3 is that it says, having purged us, and, uh, and he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He had by himself, not with the help of a priesthood or the Levitical system, he had by himself purged our sins. So it kind of builds up to this climactic statement about being, our sins being purged and sets the stage for a lot of the book of Hebrews, which talks about the priestly work of Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice and the superior priest, which I'll be talking about in chapter 7. Uh, so he's our redeemer. And uh, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the only uh, finite verb. That's the main verb of this running um, section here. 
And he sat down. Sat down. The work was finished. I'm standing up because right now I guess I'm working. In a minute I'll sit down because I'm finished. It's a wonderful thought that Jesus sat down. I love to reflect on his saying on the cross that it, it is finished. I love even more the, the idea that he sat down at God's right hand, the place of influence, the place of power, the place where he can intercede for us. How secure salvation. What an intercessor we have. What a, what a wonderful place to plead our case before God himself. So here in these first three verses, we have the introduction to the book of Hebrews telling us that Jesus Christ is superior in who he is and in the work that he did by purging our sins completely and finally. And that's what we're going to expound on in the next uh, day and a half here as we go on. And these ideas are developed later. We have in verse 2, the introduction of the idea Jesus is king. And then we have in verse 3, the introduction to the idea that Jesus is priest. And that's pretty much the focus of the book of Hebrews as we go on. Now, in the rest of chapter 1, we have a discussion of how Jesus is superior to the angels. But the main point here is that Jesus' revelation so far, the main point, is that his revelation far exceeds the Old Testament revelation. It is superior, it is final, and therefore the implication is we should listen to him. We should listen to him. More about that later. So when we go into chapter 1, I think we, we get a section that goes into chapter 2, which is not my message, but it shows that he is superior in his deity in chapter 1, then it goes on to give a warning and talk about his humanity later in chapter 2. But so let's look at chapter 1, our portion for this message. He is superior in his deity. Verses 5 and 6 show us that he is superior as the Son. And the Son is the, the par excellence vehicle of divine revelation. And it, to do this, you notice that much of the Old Testament, um, much of the verses quote the Old Testament, just about all quotes from the Old Testament showing that this was prophecy and, uh, of the Son. For example, Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have gotten you. Speaking of the time when Jesus Christ will be enthroned on the throne of David in the kingdom of God, speaking of his kingship and uh, his sonship, and that uh, God has spoken through him. Verse 4, by the way, says uh, uh, he has become much better than the angels, and he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And that's why that's what introduces this discussion of angels. And by the way, I'll point you to that word better there, because you'll find that word uh, 13 times in the book of Hebrews, 19 times in the whole New Testament. That's something, isn't it? So Jesus is better. He's the best. He's superior in everything. And here in chapter 1, over the angels. So we have first a reference in verse 5 to his eternal sonship. And... Uh, addressing the time when he will be um, set up as king by God. And no angel is ever addressed in this way, the author says. God has never said this to any angel, only to the Son of God. And um, also the second quote, probably from Psalm 97, 7 in verse 6. And then in verses uh, 7 through 9, it speaks of his kingship. Uh, and of the angels, he says, who 
who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flaming fire. That's what God says to the angel, about the angels. What does that mean that they're ministers of flaming fire? Well, we don't exactly know. It just could mean that they, they execute God's will quickly, swiftly, powerfully. Uh, the point is, is that angels are servants and God speaks of them as servants, but to the Son, he says, your throne, oh God, you hear that? To the Son, God says, your throne, oh God. What a powerful verse on the deity of Christ. That's one that the cults can't answer. God calls Jesus God, and your throne is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. You know, a scepter, the symbol of a king, his staff is the scepter of your kingdom. And so God is endowing his son, Jesus Christ, with the kingship of the kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated lewdness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Anointing of a special choosing and an appointment with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Oh, here's an interesting thought. Jesus is anointed to be the king in a special way to a greater degree than his companions. Who are his companions? It's an interesting word that you'll probably hear more about as we go through the book of Hebrews. It's the Greek word, metakoi, the plural, metakos. And that word was used for someone like a business associate, even a, a partner or a marriage partner, a colleague, a co-laborer, somebody who's headed in the same direction uh, towards the same mission. Jesus has companions, those who are with him on this trip, a cohort. Now, when someone becomes president or a king, they usually bring into power and places of power those who help them get elected or help them get obtain that position, and so they give them special favor. This is talking about those who obtain special favor as Jesus' close companions. I'm not going to expand much more on it than that because you'll hear more about that. And so we have these verses uh, touting his kingship in the future. And then he is eternal, verses 10 through 12 go on to say. Uh, talks about his creation. He was there at the beginning, so he could not have been created. Angels were created is the point. Angels have a finite existence. Jesus has an infinite existence with no beginning and no end. And so he quotes the Old Testament in bringing that point home too as well. Psalm 102. And then in verses 13 through 14, he is exalted. Psalm 110, in verse 13, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He never said that to the angels, the author notes. And so he gives them a special privilege of being exalted in the presence of God, seated at his right hand. No angel had that privilege. Jesus is superior to the angels. Why is that such an important point? Because many religions, and the Jews also at that time, really venerated angels. They delivered and mediated the law. Uh, after all, and they had a large part in the Old Testament. And so they really venerated angels, and here's one who's superior to the angels. And that's, I think, the point that the author is making. He's superior because he's king, and he's superior because he's our high priest. And finally, in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth the minister for those who will inherit salvation? You see, the angels are ministering spirits, serving spirits. Jesus is not a serving spirit. He's the king. And these, these serving spirits are sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Now we've got to pause one more time here. I want you to notice how salvation is spoken of here. It's spoken of in the future tense. 
You see, the book about Hebrews, we said, was all about the future. Even the word salvation in the book of Hebrews is about our future salvation. You may be acquainted with the idea that salvation, in the, there's three tenses to it. In the past, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's our justification. In the present, we're saved from the presence of sin. That's our sanctification. In the future, we're saved from the uh, power of sin. Now, I got it wrong. The middle sanctify, sanctify the middle sense, we're saved from the power of sin. The final end, we're saved from the very presence of sin when we're glorified in God's presence. So we will inherit in the future a salvation. And that's how it's spoken of in the New Testament. Basically, the word means deliverance. And in, I, I put it this way, in Hebrews, salvation assumes, assumes justification because he's writing to readers who have been justified, but looks forward to the believer's ultimate deliverance from all of the enemies into God's blessing, blessings in the future kingdom. So the salvation he speaks of is a final deliverance from everything that's against us into all of the blessings that we can enjoy in the kingdom of God. 9.28 says it this way, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. You know, it's, it's conditional here. Those who will enjoy that kind of a blessings in the, in the uh, kingdom are those who eagerly wait for him. But you see that salvation is future. Well, let's draw this to a close. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. We should listen to him. We've heard a lot of voices in these days about diseases, about riots, about protesters, about racial justice. Everybody's screaming at us, it seems. Everybody's saying something different. There's conflicting advice, conflicting news. There's fake news. There's real news. It's just all coming at us. Who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? Jesus is God's ultimate and final message to us. Not the politicians. Not the Pope, not the commentators, not Oprah, Jesus. Are we listening to him? Do you have a partnership with him as one of the metakoi? Are you mission-minded the same way Jesus was mission-minded, with a kingdom mindset, preparing for the future? What we do today matters tomorrow. And the reward for faithfully following him today will be realized in the kingdom of God with our ultimate significance. You are significant because you're saved, but you will find there is a reward for faithfully enduring the trials in this life with Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.